Yeah. Bobby said, you know, I'm the person, not Muhammad Ali, that came up with the phrase, I'm the greatest. Huh. He said, I've been saying I'm the greatest for a long time. <laughs> 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 and, and Muhammad Ali stole it from me. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. My guest this week is Dr. Frank Brady, who, well, has worked at St. John's University, is a founding editor of Chess Life magazine, is a biographer of multiple fascinating characters, and I think most notably has been associated with the chess genius Bobby Fischer, who he wrote a biography about called Endgame. I've been a fan of Frank Brady forever because when I first started reading at 16 years old, I encountered his Orson Welles biography and then the Bobby Fischer biography. And when I went to cover the World Chess Championships in 2016, um, Frank Brady almost every day was, was the guy that I sat beside and I just adored him. It is quite amazing to meet some of your literary heroes and uh, get along with them. It doesn't happen very often. And Frank now is, I think, 87 years old and is just such a sweet, caring, brilliant guy. And, uh, and the connection that he has to Bobby Fischer reminds me a lot of Thomas Hauser's relationship to Muhammad Ali, except Brady knew Fischer a lot longer and I think was a a lot closer in many ways and, and ultimately broke off in a very dramatic set of circumstances with Fisher because he dared to write that Fisher was Jewish. And that was enough for Fisher to take um, an enormous amount of umbrage, <laughs> despite the fact that it's completely true. So I found Brady's revelations about Fisher and covering him just so useful for journalists to cover extraordinary characters up close, um, useful techniques and, and just how problematic and challenging it is to form personal relationships with them. And some of, some of those connections that we have between journalists and, and great athletes, uh, are some of my favorite things to, to read, uh, I guess Jimmy Cannon and Joe Lewis chiefly among them. And, uh, so Brady and Fisher is one of those as well. And I hope you enjoy this week's guest, Frank Brady on Tourist Information. What I found really compelling about the Fisher to boxing connection is how often chess is used as a metaphor in box. So many boxers, when they're really technical and show a lot of intelligence, like ring IQ, it, it always comes back to chess. Many sports. Many uh, sports, sure. Uh, you could say it in football, you could say it in baseball. Stock but, market. Yeah, yeah, you know, chess is used. It's a good analogy. And uh, uh, in terms of creative thinking and, and uh, looking forward and not making uh, mistakes, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's a good analogy. And I also find, I found with, with the Grandmaster, the, the most frequent question I would be asked by literary people or sort of national radio shows was, you cover boxing, it, in any way did that prepare you to, to cover chess? And I thought, it, it better oh, than totally, anything. Of course. <laughs> no, no, that's good, that's good, that's good. Uh, people also uh, 
create the analogy of chess and uh, fencing, for instance, mm. another thing altogether, you know, huh. really. Uh, but uh, it's, it's such a wonderful game, and it's such an interesting game that you could make many different kinds of analogies, I think, in relationship to it. And maybe, maybe a logical place to start is, is, I mean, it's interesting with you, I was thinking about this, that before I'd ever come to New York, the, the ways that I became connected to it and drawn to it was when I started reading at 15 years old for pleasure. I don't think I ever read a book before then. Uh, I found one of your books in the library. I remember the Kitsilano Library on, uh, God, what would it be? Broadway and McDonald. <laughs> first library I ever went to. And and this was in Toronto? This is in Vancouver. Oh, Vancouver. And I was getting all these biographies out and I spotted one of Orson Welles by Frank Brady. And I think there were other... You were the one who read it. <laughs> <laughs> but there were these other... And then Bobby Fischer, Endgame comes out. Um, you, you have what? Barbara Streisand, Hugh Hefner... So I was also intrigued to talk to you a bit about what it's like not just to do a, a little profile essay or a long-form essay, but how you approach trying to create the document for the legacy of, of somebody's identity and personage in our culture. I was intrigued by that. Well, um, first of all, uh, for me, I have to be really interested in the subject, obviously. I have to be mm -hmm. passionately interested in the subject. I don't like to do work of any kind unless I'm truly interested in it. I don't like to, do, although I have actually, I have written things that, you know, for uh, hire, so to speak. Sure. And, uh, but so what I, if, if I'm really interested in the subject and, and think that this might make it uh, perhaps an interesting book, more than just a, 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 a brief profile, I begin to accumulate everything I can about the person. Mm. And I do that by a series of uh, research into archives, reading other books that may have, uh, you know, mentioned him. Uh, I've been known to go to libraries, and if they are lucky enough to have total biography sections, uh, you know, from Benjamin Franklin up to Elon Musk or whoever, sure. I would go through every book just to see if if my subject is mentioned in that book, maybe mm -hmm. only briefly, but might give me one little fact or one little piece of insight. And so, and I am interested in everything about the subject, right. everything, even though as I'm accumulating it, making a Xerox copy of that piece of information or making a note of that uh, uh, piece of information. I know at the time that I'm not going to have that in the book. It's not going in because maybe it's too trivial. However, I want to know. I want to know everything. Hmm. And so uh, that's how I begin. And I create an index, actually, before the book begins, hmm. before writing the book. And so uh, I use that then. That index is very important to me. Uh, so if the person spent four years in, in the army during the Second World War, I can find it immediately. I, I can't remember perhaps every little thing. So the index helps me. Um, and uh, to the extent that I can, I mean, it's not like a, a, a dissertation index that might be, you know, have 5,000 uh, sure. citations, but as much as possible. And then uh, 
I accumulate all this material. It takes a long time. Uh, I feel uh, that I'm not going to write until I know. Uh, also, of course, I try to interview the subject if he's alive. Uh, and, uh, and in some cases I do, in some cases I don't. I can't get the person or they refuse or whatever the case may be. Uh, I try to interview uh, all of the people uh, who surrounded him. Uh, usually, just as a rough figure, it's usually about 100 people, I would say, uh, mm-hmm. uh, to, to, to almost every book that I've done. Uh, sometimes more than that. And I start usually with the ones that are not close to the person. And I not so close to the person, but may have worked for him for two weeks on a film or whatever the case may be. And I, and I get deeper as I go along because I don't want to blow it. I want to get uh, to the point where I've received certain information without uh, people going to the source and saying, should I talk to Frank Brady? Uh, in other words, uh, people who have just a peripheral piece of information about the subject might be willing to talk without getting permission to uh, from the source. So I start, and I work toward the center, and the center, and finally I get to the point where I want to go to the subject. That also means that I don't blow, I don't come up with stupid questions. I'm not going to say to Orson Welles, well, you directed a film uh, called Citizen Kane, didn't you? And Whatever, I'm not going to come up with stupid questions. I have to come up with much better questions than that. And, um, and sometimes uh, I, I've been stymied. I had a subject. It's actually, he was the principal source for my subject. Let's put it to you that way. Uh, the son of the source that I was writing about. And he was completely cooperative with me, but he was not that, although he was a publisher of a magazine and a graduate of Yale, uh, he was not that verbose. He was not that forthcoming uh, to me, not because he was hiding anything, but because he was an old man. He was about 87 when I got to him. So I didn't know what to do. I wasn't getting what I needed from him, which I think, you know, he was my subject's son. He should know more. Hmm. And so what I did, it sounds like a silly thing, it's a but it, but it turned out to be good. I, I made up a list of about a hundred words, uh, almost at random words like jealousy, anger, affection, uh, and, and, and other more practical words, gambling, eating, sleeping. And I got up this, this list, of a hundred words. I got on a plane and I flew to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to interview him again after the third or fourth interview. And I went out to lunch with him and I said, I have a list and I'm just gonna say the word and think about the word and see if it attaches anything to your memory. Hmm. And so I would say a word and he might say, no, he was not jealous. No, no, I, I, don't, I can't remember anything about that. Oh, no, no. Um, gambling. Oh, yeah. I, I, he didn't gamble at the racetrack or anything, but he was a gambler in life. He took a lot of risks. And all of a sudden, I would get, I got what I needed, actually. Huh. I got an insight into the, the man's 
uh, father that I wouldn't have gotten any other way. So you triggered them through something that they weren't consciously aware of? No, they weren't, and I had to draw them out. You mean your father never got angry? Well, one time. (laughs) That's that's so clever. He would come out. So it it was just, it's, it's a device I've used once, and I think, should I ever write more? I will use again. And, uh, interesting. It's a bit, bit of a gimmick, I think, in some ways. But it is. But it's an interesting way to approach somebody in that sort of Proustian sense of triggering. You, they make a connection that they haven't in their own mind. You providing stimulus, and then they Absolutely. ignite it with something. Yeah, yeah. And also, I'm reminded what you're saying. I'd never thought of it that way, coming from the outside in yeah. to the subject. But I was reading a book recently. And it was a book of, about writing from, from somebody I've also profiled for the podcast, DBC Pierre, who won the Booker in, in 2003, is he made the observation, isn't it strange how so many of the deepest truths about people exist at the fringes rather than the core? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I find it interesting. You could have somebody who only had a cameo in that person's life, but they may have glimpsed something that nobody else would see, especially not the inner circle or... Or the person themselves. It's it's interesting. I think uh, uh, Plutarch uh, wrote once that sometimes you can get more information uh, about a general from his valet huh. uh, and about how he dressed him and how that went on than you can from his lieutenants or colonels. Interesting. You know, so uh, that is true. Uh, of course, you want to get the material from the source to the when you can. So that's the logical place to go with that is is of course you were friends with Bobby Fisher, your first subject for a biography. Yes, sir. So why don't we go there if you don't mind? Mm-hmm. Um, sure. Bobby Fisher born nineteen forty two? Three. Forty three. So you're friends with him when he's a very young man. Yes. When did you first meet Bobby Fisher? Okay. The first time I ever saw Bobby Fisher, not actually meet him, but was at a tournament in which I was an assistant director. It was a chess tournament at Asbury Park, New Jersey, huh. on a great old ho- sort of white elephant of a hotel uh, called the Hotel Monterey, right off the boardwalk. And uh, there must have been uh, uh, 800 to 1,000 players in this tournament. And then there was this little boy who was playing and uh, in those days, this was like 1950, 51, something like that. Uh, he, uh, in those days, there weren't that many kids playing in tournaments as there are today. There were all right. kinds of tournaments for kids. And so he was a novelty just in that sense. Secondly, he wouldn't resign a game even if he was losing, even if he was Hmm. down a queen. He continued to play. You had to mate him. And so he was one of the last games of each round, and people would gather around him to watch him. It was a novelty to see it. And and although he didn't do well in the tournament at all. Uh, But no, I didn't speak to him. I wasn't introduced to him. But as the assistant director of the tournament, I saw him and, you know, and... And his mother was there. And I did talk to his mother. Regina. Regina, and at that time. And uh, I was asking about him because I was intrigued, you know, this little kid. And uh, uh, she was as bright as a penny, a highly educated woman. 
Right. Uh, and uh, it was a pleasure talking to her and meeting her. And I remember asking, you know, what school did he go to? And has he been studying long? And uh, he hadn't been studying very long. Uh, and he was at that time a member, had become a member of the Brooklyn Chess Club, mm. which met at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. Huh. And they had the nice quarters there. <clears throat> and um, and uh, uh, if my memory serves, and it may, <laughs> uh, there, was a, uh, there was a little girl, but I don't, hanging around, but I don't think she was playing in the tournament. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, after the game, his games were over, the two of them would run out onto the boardwalk and, you know, like two kids to go playing. And that was sort of very human and nice. He wasn't sort of a nerd. You wouldn't think be interested in girls, but here he was. Was he striking even then, his visage? No. He no. Was, he, was, he was short, shorter for his age than you would think. He grew up to be about 6'2", I guess. Yeah. 6'3", maybe. He... Uh, but he was much shorter, so he looked younger than he really was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and no, you know, he was, uh, his, he looked like, uh, you know, he wore flannel check shirts and sneakers, and, and in those days people weren't wearing blue jeans, mm-hmm. which were called dungarees at that time, okay. but nevertheless, he wasn't wearing, but he like corduroy slacks, and uh, uh, just, you wouldn't be able to tell if he had any real genius behind the behind him, but his perseverance of not giving up and really taking the game seriously was, you could sense that I could sense it then the second time uh I saw him uh, which was maybe a couple of years after that actually. Uh, was right in the neighborhood where where, where we are. Uh, hmm. There was a chess tournament uh, on 76th Street, I believe it was, or it was maybe 75th, uh, at a place called the Churchill Chess and Bridge Club. It doesn't exist anymore. Hmm. And I played in that tournament. I didn't do well, <laughs> but uh, he played in it. And in between rounds of chess tournaments, as I'm sure you know, people play offhand games and they play speed games and they talk and they kibitz and so forth. And he was playing an older man and uh, at that point. And I was watching that game and somebody was kibitzing him. Like every time he would make a move and say, no, no, move your rook, the man would just say. And Bobby spun around and said to the man, please be quiet, this is a chess game. Huh. He really was serious. Yeah. And I said to myself, wow, what a plum. What, uh, this man, this little boy knows who he is. Right. And uh, he was taking this game, even though it was an offhand game, it wasn't a part of the tournament, very, very seriously. Huh. More than hardly anyone would, even an adult would in those situations. You know, people would be laughing and playing. So uh, that struck me as very important. What well, reminds me what you're saying. It's interesting you go right to that because I found, uh, I, I interviewed Gay Talese for, for the book, and one of the things he wrote, he didn't recollect it terribly well <laughs> so many years later, but it, he wrote that, this little 10-year-old 
with a can of Coke next to the, his board, looks down at the board and his pieces as if the fate of the world rests in this game. Well, it did, in effect. For him, it did. The fate of, you know, I mean, that was his universe. Right. And that was, uh, meant everything to him. That was, chess was his life. Uh, Chess was life. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, he was always serious about the game. When did you, when did you begin to get to know him? I got to know him uh, when one day in my office, at 80 East 11th Street, uh, I had been hired to be the business, assistant business manager of the United States Chess Federation. Mm-hmm. And uh, eventually, within months, the, the business manager resigned and I became business manager, so I was running the whole organization. Huh. And uh, in came Mrs. Fisher and Bobby, and uh, he seemed very unease because she was there to, to ask for money if, she, if the U.S. Chess Federation could have the money to send Bobby to some tournament. Wow. And uh, we were a small organization at that time, with like 4,000 uh, players, were, you know, 5,000 players were very small. Now it's like 95,000, 100,000 in the U.S. Chess Federation. But, uh, and we didn't have extra money to give to players to send to tournaments, especially if it hadn't been Europe. In this case, it wasn't Europe. It was somewhere in the United States. And I said, well, I could see what I could do. And uh, she was, uh, you know, he was just sitting, uh, standing there with his head down, not looking at me as I sat behind the desk and she and he stood in front. Hmm. And uh, at one point she said, say hello to Mr. Brady, you know. Hello, you know, like, you know, he, he didn't want to be bothered. He felt embarrassed about his mother asking mm. for money, I'm sure. And uh, he didn't really know me, even though I was in that tournament with him and I was the assistant director. He didn't remember me. I remembered him, and of course I remembered her. Uh, but <clears throat> as time went on and as he became greater, uh, you know, a stronger player and a greater player and started winning, all, you know, the U.S. Junior, which he won, I think twice back to back, and then the U.S. Championship. More and more, there was a, a business, if you will, with him in the United States Chess Federation. Right. And uh, I was also uh, uh, we had a new little newspaper which I turned into a glossy magazine, uh, and that became a big deal. And so I was always writing about Bobby in his exploits. I did a number of cover stories on him. And, um, so, uh, and so there, there was that happening. The other thing was that I was a member of the Marshall Chess Club, and he used to come and play in the speed tournaments there, which I ran. <clears throat> Sometimes I'd play in those speed tournaments. Quite honestly, I don't remember ever playing him in that those speed tournaments, though I played with him offhand about 100 games. I, I, uh, you know, five-minute chess, that kind of thing. What was your record, just off the, off the top of your well, memory, well, if you guessed? I, I can tell you that there were two times in my life that I beat Bobby Fischer, but each, wow. I have to tell you, <laughs> 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 was strange. 
<laughs> one was uh, we started playing five-minute chess, and he he beat me game after game. And then he said, "All right, I'll he'll play four minute. I'll play five minute." Yeah. He kept beating. Then he said, "I'll play three minute, and then you play five minute." He kept beating me. I mean, he was he was the greatest speed player of his time. Right. I might add. Then he got down to two minutes. In the world, yeah, you might world. also add. In the yeah. world. In the yeah. world. Yeah. Not just at the Marshall Chess No, no, no. In the world. Yeah. Then he took two minutes against my five minutes. And during that two minutes, I'm thinking of a, or during the five minutes, I'm thinking of a move. He gets up, goes to the Coke machine, gets a Coke, <laughs> wasting his two minutes. But any event, I won one of those two-minute games. Huh. Okay, so does it count? No, it doesn't count. The other time, and, and I'm not afraid to say this, uh, we were invited to dinner at somebody's house up in the Bronx, chess player, great, wonderful chess player, Anthony Santosier. And Anthony uh, was a great Italian cook, and he made a wonderful meal. Uh, and uh, he, he begged me to bring Bobby, and it took about six months for me to get Bobby to agree to go up to the Bronx. Uh, and so when we were there, Bobby kept drinking more and more Chianti, and Santa Sierra had a young partner who was there who kept pestering Bobby to to play. And Bobby didn't want to, you know, play a kid who hardly knew more than the moves. But he played him one game and, you know, it killed him in about six moves. And uh, then I said, you want to play, Bobby? All right, you know. So we played, but he was drunk. Yeah. And so <laughs> I managed to swindle a game. That's all. That's all. So that doesn't count either. No, but that's fun. <laughs> I mean, it's like sparring with Muhammad Ali and landing a lucky punch. Yeah, one one punch. No, no, you know. Well, that's what that was the genesis for the Rocky movie. Was Stallone that is watched true. the guy who did it? You uh, never got me down. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Well, and and I mean, in terms of. You were there at the game of the century where, what, Bobby's 13 years old? Yeah, yeah no, I was not at, at the game of, uh, I was not at the game of the century. You're not? I was not. I wrote about the game of the century, and it might have sounded like I was at the oh, game of the century. Oh, okay, okay. But I, I absolutely was not there. Um, I, I just happened not to be there at that time at the Marshall, you know. But uh, all, all of the information that I wrote about about the game of the century came from uh, other eyewitnesses mm, and okay. so uh, I built that up and I sourced that I, I'm pretty sure I sourced all of that yeah. where, where it came from but it was it was an incredible game you know for this young man to beat someone who had been the US Open champion Donald Byrne it was his name elegant man uh, and uh he had beaten Rashevsky in that very tournament, uh, right. who was one of the great players. And, uh, and then he plays Bobby, and, uh, and Bobby comes up with this move that is so deep that, uh, you know, brings uh, tears to your eyes when you see it. How the hell could he have seen that? Queen sacrifice. Yeah, queen sacrifice. How many moves ahead was it? Was it? It's about 12 moves ahead. Against a player of that level. Yeah. yeah. Fascinating. Well, and... and I'd, I'd just be remiss to leave out that while you're there and meeting Bobby, mm -hmm. this uh, fledgling punk who would go on to become a bit of a director of some note, 
refused to pay his dues. Yeah, that's true. He did refuse to pay. Well, not so much dues to become a member of the club, but his or fees to play at every tournament. In this case, the speed tournament, the fee was 50 cents. Right. Uh, so it was not a big deal, but he would always, and I was the one who ran the tournaments, I was the director, and he'd say, take it out of my winnings. You know, uh, and he wouldn't pay the 50 cents. Who are we talking about here? Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, um, as I think I mentioned before, I played in some of those tournaments myself. I must have played Kubrick, but quite honestly, I mean, I've played thousands of chess games. I, I still play at least one chess game uh, every single day of my life huh. online, but, you know, serious. We're yeah. literally sitting next to a chess board that's prepared. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, and so uh, I've played thousands and thousands, but I cannot remember whether I ever played Kubrick. He did not, the, the, those speed tournaments were once a week. He didn't come every single week, yeah. but he came, you know, every second or third week when he was around the village, which was a lot. <laughs> and he's hustling over in Washington Square Park yeah, yeah. regularly. He, he was not a bad... And he must have played Fisher as well, because, you know, these were round-robin tournaments where right. everybody plays everybody at least one game. Sure. So he must have played Fisher as well. So. Isn't that interesting? I just... I mean, you could do a whole book on the history of fascinating people involved in chess in New York in that time. I mean... Duchamp, Kubrick, Fisher. Uh, you know, I'm glad you mentioned Duchamp because I have a funny story about Duchamp that, um, well, not so funny, a very interesting story. Um, the, uh, the I knew Marcel and I played Marcel and he came to the club. In fact, he moved right across the street from the club to 28 <laughs> West 10th Street okay. so he could be close to it. And he's abandoned one of the most successful art careers in the world at that time. Well, that's what everybody thought. Okay, okay. Okay. Uh, because he wasn't showing. But, you know, uh, people said Kubrick abandoned film so that he could study chess when he moved to England. And he was, he was ordering... Uh, all kinds of uh, chess computers and uh, and chess books and so forth. And, and Kubrick only made, what, 14 films? Yeah. Well, during that period of time, you know, to do a, quote, great, quote, film or a meaningful film, sometimes it takes a long time. You know, Mark Rothko said, doing the painting is only 10% Mm. of painting it's the 90 percent of coming up with the idea right and right. so any of it duchamp had a studio on 14th street i think i knew that at the time and he had me over to his house for dinner i did a, a big story on him in just life magazine mm. uh, i played with him and he, once he said do you know of any space? I'm looking for some more space to rent. And I said, well, there is space in my building, 80 East 11th Street, where I had the office for the Chess Federation. And, and I said, but, you know, there are offices, but they, they have fairly high ceilings, and, uh, you know, maybe you could get an office in there. And he said, okay, I'll think about it. And a couple of weeks later, he came by my office. And the, the super 
of the building, or manager of the building, lived right across from my office, you know, in a suite of offices there, and with his wife who was ill. And so I never actually saw the wife, but he would go in and bring meals and get stuff. And I knocked on his door, came out, I said, my friend's looking for some space here. Do you have anything? So, yes, I'll, I'll take him around. Well, I didn't follow Duchamp at that time. I had to get back to my office to work. And, and, and so I, when I finally saw the super, I said, so what happened? He said, oh, yes, I, I, uh, he's taken an office in the, in the fourth floor, hmm. my office on the sixth floor. Uh, and uh, I said, that's nice and good. And maybe over the next two years, I saw Duchamp come and go, or just come or go, two or three times. I hardly ever saw him. You know, no, maybe, you know, I was working basically a nine to five job. Maybe he came in very early or came in very late, whatever it was. Little did I know that Duchamp worked on a piece of that, his last work, his great work, Etan uh, Dion. Huh. That's, he, that's what he was working on for 20 years. People thought he had given up art. He hadn't. Wow. He worked on that in that office in my building. That you lined up for him. That I lined up for him. Fascinating. And then when he was getting ill, he knew he would have to, this had to be taken apart. I mean, it's a magnificent uh, sculpture, if you will. Uh, had to be taken apart. So he wrote a manual on how to take it apart and how to reassemble it in case he died. And he died indeed. Yeah. And so his wife, Teeny, who I knew, and uh, her son, not his, but her son, from another marriage, they, after Duchamp died, they put it together and the Philadelphia Museum of Art bought it. And where it is now, and, uh, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen it or whatever, but you go there and there's a little peephole and you look through the peephole and you <laughs> see this work, this mysterious, uh, realistic in many ways work. It wasn't abstract. And so I, I, I feel very personal to Nushab about, about that. That's uh, you know, in effect, I helped him a little tiny bit by getting him an office of the, so that he could finish his last, the last work he ever did. That's very interesting. And one of the greatest works. It's so interesting to me in history, I was reading quite granular level of Van Gogh's day-to-day in the south of France as I visited there around my 40th birthday in June. And I always wondered, he's always brought up for being crazy and for being destitute. And yet he was living in Saint-Rémy and Arles where he's got a three-bedroom apartment in Arles, <laughs> not shabby, in the no. south of France. No. And his brother is sending him the equivalent of twice a teacher's salary and all his equipment. I'm thinking, this doesn't sound like no. the most impoverished no, existence. No, not at all. When you've been on an allowance for your entire adult life, <laughs> you know, but it... it 
I, I mean, I think people who read his stuff understand the brother's role in it. But it brings me to, with chess, one of the parallels with chess and boxing that intrigues me is the, the trope that boxing is dead. Has, it seems like it's always brought up now, and a lot of the media and fans are always defending it. They're defensive about the fact it's not dead. We understand it's not what it used to be. Sure. Um, but that trope was actually invented in, in, I believe, 1896 was the first time a journalist said boxing is dead because uh-huh. of an event. It never goes away. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it never gets fixed and you can never kill it is the famous quote about boxing. But in chess, there's an intriguing parallel that I wonder, I think you would have unique insight about. I wasn't able to include it in the book. I found it out too late. But Paul Morphy who most people compare Bobby Fischer to, um, was a real example in the United States of a, a figure who was the best in the world. And the media seemed to really pick up on him that he can go to Europe, which he did, and trounce all the great European champions. He's a pride of America being the best. And then the Civil War happens, and nobody cares anymore about Paul Morphy in the same way. And America invents these other pastimes that, that get a lot more traction. Baseball, football, the major sports that, that take over for chess. Why is it that when Bobby Fischer is confronted with the backdrop of a war like Vietnam it, and the Cold War, it makes it even bigger, the importance of Bobby Fischer, whereas with Morphy, he's drowned out. And I wonder... Well, the media, perhaps... Uh, you know, which was much, much more uh, vibrant or, uh, or, right, you know, during those days. And, of course, in Bobby, it was, the, you know, the fight against the Soviets. And, right. You know, and he was, in a sense, a symbol. Uh, Bobby himself, in his great ego, thought that he was uh, responsible for practically ending the Cold War, but showing... Or showing that uh, okay, we didn't do Sputnik ahead of it, but look, we can beat the Russians at their own game. This is you know, chess in, in Russia, and Soviet Union was, you know, the, the principal activity, the principal sport, if you want to call it a sport. Right. And here, here, this little kid from Brooklyn, with no help from his government or anything else, shows up and ends up defeating the hegemony of the Soviet Union chess machine. And so uh, I think uh, it captured the imagination of the public. I mean, uh, you were at the, uh, the match because I was, no, that's another match. The other match uh, mm. with Magnus Carlsen playing an American the first time since Bobby Fischer, Fabiano yeah. Caruana. If, if Caruana lost that match, he came very close. You know, very very close to, to winning it. Uh, if he had won that match, it would not have been the same thing as Bobby winning the match. But you know, Bobby had this outsized personality, this outside figure, this, this boy genius, whatever you want to call him, diamond in the rough, a kid from poverty in Brooklyn, and Caruana was from another uh, point of view. Uh, what was it, 530, what is it, in Brooklyn Heights? You know the address. You, 560 Lincoln Place. 560, <laughs> what's the apartment number? <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember now, it may have been 4, four. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, literally that story of you, 
there's a kid who's alone with his sister and the sister goes down the, downstairs to a candy shop and buys a chessboard and off you go. Yeah, that's a little changed also. Okay. Uh, from what I found in my research. Actually, hmm. when Regina Fisher moved from Chicago, <clears throat> I think it was the last place that she had lived in, with the two children... They did not first move to Brooklyn. They moved to 13th Street between 2nd and 3rd Avenue in mm. Manhattan. And uh, right from, uh, from their windows, they could see the back of Lu Chow's restaurant, a famous German restaurant on 14th Street, mm. where great chess players used to play and many others played. I'm sorry that it went under. I ate there many times. Mm. Um, but it was on that block <laughs> when his sister went and bought a chess set. Ah. Wasn't in Brooklyn. It was, okay. And uh, there were a lot of different documentaries that said he, he learned chess in Brooklyn. And he goes, it's not true. He learned it in Manhattan. Right. On 13th Street. And it was, you know, maybe a year after that, they moved to Brooklyn. And that's when he really started to spend more time with it. Well, with, with, with Fisher also, and I, I mean, I, I want to get back to our timeline where you started off with, but when I interviewed Harry Benson, it was interesting because Benson made the point to, to begin our conversation by saying, look, I don't know a goddamn thing about chess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I said, well, yeah, but you also said that Bobby Fisher was the most interesting person you've ever met and the most interesting person you've ever photographed. And in the second half of the 20th century... You photograph basically everybody there is in American life mm-hmm. at a uh, on the cultural level. Yes. So why would you be so drawn and compelled by somebody when you don't even understand what it is that they're doing? Yeah. That itself is exactly what I want to understand. And all of the comparisons he made about Fisher immediately went to comparing him to Muhammad Ali, that they had a lot of parallels in their intensity and their cruelty. Their, their eyes, he said, were just extraordinary. So I wonder for you, uh, we're just at the point what, what you were telling of, of meeting him and, and getting to know him toward the game of the century is he's about to explode into being one of the most famous people in the world. Uh, Dick Cabot said, uh, I think it was published in the New York Times, that for about a day or for about a week, he was the most famous person in the world. A chess player. Yeah, yeah the most famous person in the entire world. I, I, I can go along. I can go along with that. It was tremendous. Well, he made the cover story of every magazine in America, let alone the world. Right. So, uh, what is your question? Is it about his intensity? Well, what or? was it like that of all things, it's not just a movie star who becomes the most famous person in the world. It's a chess player. It's totally unprecedented. Yeah, and especially for Americans. Because especially for not, Americans. We're not thought to, to be the most cultural country in the world. Right. And, and uh, yeah, it, it, it just was absolutely amazing that he could do it. And, of course, he started what was, what was known as the Fisher chess boom right. as a result. I mean, you know, Marshall Chess Club is at its height now with 500 members, and at that time it had 800 members. Huh. I don't know where we even put them all. I can't, it's hard for me to... Because I was in Europe even after the match, so I wasn't back in the U.S. right away. But 
I understand it was, I don't know where we could see all of them. And the phone continuously rang, people wanting chess lessons and playing chess in bars and on stoops. And it was a, it was a craze. Everybody wanted to play chess after that. So how much of it was the chess he was playing versus him? Him. It was more him than he did it. More him. But then people say, hey, that might be an interesting game. Maybe I might like to play it. Maybe up until that time, I never had any exposure to it. But it was on television and, uh, you know, every game and uh, and written about. And and it's this mysterious character. Uh, Bobby did have an intensity about him. And when he could get into a position, uh, I've written about this, that I, was, I remember sitting in the Cedar Tavern, the famous uh, haunt of abstract expressionist artists that Jackson Pollock used to break up the place every Tuesday night, and others, Franz Klein and Robert Motherwell and John Cage and all of those people would go to the Cedar Tavern. We, uh, Bobby and I were in there, and I asked him how he prepared for, he was about to play in Mar del Plata in Argentina. I said, how do you prepare? Are you preparing? And he pulled out his little pocket set and he uh, was showing me how he prepared for uh, uh, the various players who he knew knew were going to be in the tournament. And uh, and he would say, well, Bishop Gerplain, here, wait, wait, Bishop it was going too fast for me. It went right through my head, but he just kept doing it. And after a while, I realized he wasn't even aware of me. Hmm. He was in a reverie, a total reverie. And every once in a while, he'd say, looking at his pockets, and he'd say, no, 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 that's, that's wrong. I mean, he was playing himself and analyzing himself, and it was real. And I remember sitting there and I wept because even though I had seen, uh, directed many of the great tournaments that he played in, I had never seen really this reverie and I really sensed that I was in the presence of genius. Total genius. I mean, in fact, every once in a while I'd make so much noise to tell the people in the restaurant would look like, who is this guy? You know, crazy Mm -hmm. guy or something. Have you had that with anybody else in your life? Oh, anybody else in my life? Yeah. Not personally. I mean, I've I have felt, you know, reading things and stuff that, you know, seeing a great film, uh, you know, where I was touched to tears. Yeah. Just because of, not because necessarily it was sad, but because it was so beautiful or so great or so profound. I just find it such an interesting vessel chess because if Fisher becomes this sort of Babe Ruth to America for a period of time, but any idiot can watch Babe Ruth hit a home run and it's understand it, it. it's immediately intelligible. Yeah. Well, that's the problem. And people wanted to be able to understand Fisher and that's why they wanted chess lessons and that's why they started mm. playing it. That's why Bloomingdale's and Macy's out, sold out all of their chess sets right after the match or during the match because people wanted to understand the game. They couldn't, but they knew something was happening here. Well, and, and also just, I mean, and you tell me in terms of the psychology of the man is 
he was one of those people that offered sound bites that was like a Muhammad Ali or like the great boxers of the past, where I've never heard an audience react to just a sentence the way Bobby could distill and reduce what it was was the wow of what he does. I mean, saying to Dick Cavett, the great home run of chess is to break a man's ego. ego. Yeah. Well, you know, I saw that show, of course, and it's been on YouTube, and I've watched it since. And so Very forth. famous quote. Yeah. But, you know, I, I had a feeling that he was pulling a little bit of an act as far as You think so? Concerned. Yeah, yeah. I don't think he was that mean. No. Uh, you know, to want to see somebody's ego crumble. I think he thought it was a clever thing to say. I mean, you mentioned Muhammad Ali. Yeah. Bobby said, you know, I'm the person, not Muhammad Ali, that came up with the phrase, I'm the greatest. Huh. He said, I've been saying I'm the greatest for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Muhammad Ali stole it from me. Right. So, uh, well, and interesting, too, with, with Fisher is that we forget with Muhammad Ali that Muhammad Ali was a big underdog when he went to the championship. Mm. Um, he was not popular. He was disliked in a lot of ways. With Fisher, it was like we had this great champion that everybody was behind and, and the world had, he was the youngest grandmaster in history. He's the youngest, just breaking record after record after record. There was so much momentum and he wins the world championship in the, these beautiful games and controversial, and he's getting so much money, and then he disappears. Yeah. No one can really figure that out, and I can't pretend to tell you that I know definitely what it was all about. I do know that Fisher did feel almost godlike in his own ego, in his own personality. To, huh. If he wanted something, then that's what he wanted. And so often what would happen is that he would be offered, in some cases, millions of dollars to sponsor various products right after the match. Yeah. His attorney, Paul Marshall, said he had $10 million worth of contracts on his desk within about a month after the match was over. Uh, We're talking 1972 money. Yeah, after the 72 money, and Bobby refused it all. Uh, often, Bobby had this idea... There, you know, there are businessmen that have this idea. No matter what you offer, they want more. Hmm. They ask for more. They figure, well, if you can, oh, you're offering $40,000 for that? Well, if you can, you can afford 40, you can afford 75. And maybe you can't really. Some people do offer whatever money is. This is the most money we can afford for this. Right. But you will always ask for more money. He also didn't like to be uh, undignified or disrespected. He thought, you, you know, you know, I'm not going to uh, uh, sponsor a cigarette, uh, you know, uh, because I don't believe in it. Therefore, I don't care how much money you're paying me, I'm not going to do it. Mm-hmm. And, it. And it disrespects chess as well. Not only disrespects me, but it disrespects chess. And, he, and I, he definitely seemed to recognize as much as a Marlon Brando or a couple of other rare figures there's me and there's everybody else. Yeah, right. Let's be serious here. Yeah, like, that's nice. I like that. But, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's true. the next best chess player has not a fraction of the noteworthiness. Or, and and ne- never has been since 72. And not, never not, was not before. Country. And yeah. never was before. No, you're in, right. In yeah. 1,500 years. <laughs> Good point. It's a staggering thing. And yeah. Through the accident of chess, how we discover this 
personage. Yeah, he, you know, New York City wanted to give him a ticker tape parade, you know, and he refused it. Huh. He said, no, I don't like the idea. But the, uh, then they said, well, what about having a presentation by Mayor Lindsay on the steps of City Hall? He said, all right, I'll go to that. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, and, and I mean, the, the other angle with Fisher, I interviewed Jeremy Shap, the son of um, what was it? Dick Shap, yes, who was pretty close with Bobby. He was as well. Uh, who Bobby called a father figure, and Jeremy, I believe he won an Emmy for going out to Iceland after Fisher came out of being arrested in Japan and and was granted citizenship over there. But he does this very J.D. Salinger like disappearing act where. Now and then we hear him on weird interviews. Yeah, almost 20 years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Comes out of obscurity to accept a massive sum of money to play a rematch with Boris Vasky, disappears again, and then <clears throat> comes out near the end of his life. It's about 60 years old. Looks very disheveled, almost like the, the Unabomber after the arrest. <laughs> he did. And, uh, and seems like he's lost it. And is this virulent anti-Semite? Um, boxing and chess do seem to have this element that a lot of our heroes didn't go off into the sunset with a lot of happy endings. It's it's not a good place to look for it. What do you make of that that angle with chess and specifically with Fisher? That there is this. What makes them great chess players occasionally seems to lead them to ends that don't seem separate from what made them great seems to be a bit of a curse as well in their private life. Well, I, I could say that chess did not make Bobby mad, but chess might have made Bobby sane. Mm. Uh, as I said earlier, chess was his life. Chess was life to him. There was nothing... He said, nothing, I don't want to ever do anything other than play chess, ever. Not necessarily win chess, but play chess. He loved to play. Was there joy in it for him? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. He loved it. He loved the game. He wanted it. You could talk to him about any obscure, strange position. I remember showing him we were on a train once, and I said, well, Bobby, what do you think of this opening year? I played in the tournament the other night. He said, that's the stupidest move I've ever seen. I said, really? You really think? I said, I said, I won the tournament. He said, no, that doesn't matter. It's stupid. And then, but... But, but he said, but it's interesting. And then he started looking at it and playing it and going through it and showing me all my stupidities and why it was awful. But the point was that he was into it. He loved right. talking about the game. He literally learned new languages to read their he chess cer- books, he right? He did. He certainly did. You know, there were so many things. For instance, uh, sometimes it's difficult to win uh, if... Both players just have a rook, and one player has a pawn. And if that player who has the pawn can get that pawn to the eighth rank and make it a queen, which is in the rules, of course, then he wins the game. It's hard to do that. It's hard to do that. So Bobby was looking at, and there were books on rook and pawn endings, actually tomes. 
And Bobby, of course, studied all of us, but he, he was having a little, and this was at his height, having a little trouble understanding certain nuances of rook endings. And he, he had to study it, and he didn't want his phone to ring, and he didn't want any other obligations, and he went to a YMCA in Brooklyn. He checked in with his chess set and board and spent the weekend there from the minute he woke up to the minute he went to sleep studying these particular patterns of rook endings that he wanted to master. I mean, you talk about being, you know, a Zen archer. Right. He was right right to it. He was, in some ways, one might think he was the best player in the world for that reason. Mm. I mean, he figured it out. He didn't have a computer behind him. Do you think, I, I remember reading your book about him and thinking not only is he the most gifted, naturally gifted player ever who's played, possibly, but it seems almost undoubtedly he, at, in his time, was the the hardest working? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. No, yeah. Also, I would say, yeah. Well, I don't know. Uh, you know, I asked uh, a grandmaster, one of the top twenty players, just the other night, uh, who's aiming to to play for the world championship one of these days. A young man, and uh, I, I said, "How much time do you spend a day studying?" And he said, "About." 12 hours usually, but it can be up to 16, depending on. I said, I mean, I said every day, yeah, I give myself a day off every once in a while, but that's what he does. You know, that's why he's in the top 20 already. Right, right. So, uh, but you know, I would imagine how many hours a day did Muhammad Ali practice? Uh, different if it's physical. Yeah. Okay. Then, then I live in this building where we're sitting. We're sitting now that has a great number of musicians, and if you're lucky and you get out because the walls are very thick, you don't hear it in the apartments. When you get out in the hall, waiting for the elevator, you can hear them practice all day long. Yeah. All day long, year after year. Nuriyev said, "Of course, this is physical." He said, "If I go one day without practice." I really feel rusty. If I go two or three days, I'm practically crippled. Wow. I have to constantly remember what my body is doing. Well, Fisher is no different from a Vladimir Horowitz or a Nuriyev or a Muhammad Ali. Practice, practice, practice. Do you think, do, I've never asked you this before, and I've never really seen many people make this connection, but... In Canada, obviously, we, we had Glenn Gould, who's this eccentric genius at the it piano. Was. And, uh, you know, like Fisher was discovered pretty young as being extraordinary with, with like the Goldberg variations of Bach. But I see a lot of parallels in temperament, in eccentricity, in genius to Fisher. Did Fisher ever make that connection? With Gould. did he like music? I mean, what was what were his tastes? Uh, he was not really into music. I mean, he went to a few operas. And, huh. I mean, he didn't listen really to classical music. He liked more pop music. Huh. You know, Gould. Gould. Gould would take. Get into his car and drive it. You know, an hour away, from his home, two hours away. Stop at a truck stop, go in and order. A burger and coffee, and and uh, and listen 
for the conversations, not for the content of the conversation, but for the rhythm. Huh. And it would begin to sort of, didn't have a keyboard, but he would start moving his fingers as if he was playing the music that he was hearing from the, and it, Fisher was doing the same thing. Uh, I must say, Marcus Carlson, the world's champion, was asked uh, in, a, in a matter of interview, how much time do you spend thinking of chess? Uh, do you spend all of your time thinking of chess? And he said, well, no, not all the time. And then the interviewer said, well, what about now? He said, well, it's, it's, it's in there a little bit. Right. He pointed to his, his brain or to his head. It's in there right now. Yeah, I'm thinking about a little bit of it in there. Uh, so uh, Fisher had it, all, I think, just about all the time. Well, it's odd. I mean, it's an odd thing. I mean, I think you and I share this where, and we've talked about it, sort of the, the neuroses, the procrastination, the friction before you embark on a project, trying to assemble it, trying to, you know, what do you want to accomplish? What's available? What inspiration can you catch? And that kind of thing. Uh, but I find all my best ideas happen when I'm not putting on my thinking cap to to really address the problems. And it's when you're you're going in Central Park and just in your life that something hits you and it's the better idea than when you're straining to find it. But I, but I also am aware I only have three or four good hours of focus with writing. Mm-hmm. My brain just can't, I, I, I know I'm slacking at a certain point. And when I watch the chess players, part of what made me compelled to see it, to see them almost as much as athletes, as, as great minds, was I just can't imagine the strain of when you're trying to create while simultaneously somebody's trying to destroy your creation. <laughs> well, that's an interesting way of putting it. But uh, no, they, uh, that is one of the things to be the, the hallmarks of being a great player is to be able to for many of these games are four or five or six hours long and oh. to maintain an ability of concentration creativity passivity when necessary uh, long-term planning all of this stuff and you know, I love seeing some players. Maurice Ashley, the grandmaster, he is, when he plays a game of chess, you could put a bomb next to his ear and he wouldn't hear it. He mm. is completely in it. He has that ability and uh, to get into it. And, uh, uh, you know, I don't have that. And I think most people who play chess don't have that. You know, you might be able to maintain that for an hour, but right. not, not for so long. Well, so so with you doing biographies of these people, you having the relationship you did with Fisher where you have somebody that you became quite close to as a subject, which is quite unusual. I can't think of many biographers being as close to their subject. I guess um, I guess the Boswell Johnson is a, 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 an example. Yeah, sure. um, but you also see where these people end up. You know, you, you, you're... You're somebody who's been around for a, for a while, and a lot of your subjects, you know, Bobby Fisher is gone now. He's been gone for, for what? So uh, Orson Welles. So is Orson Welles and and Hugh Arist- Hefner. Is Aristotle gone. Onassis. Aristotle Onassis. So what is it like for you to see the story continue after you've written it, in terms of outside of the pages of your book, the life goes on, 
and then the life ends. And you've circled back like you did with Fisher to, to write Endgame. But what's it, what's it like where you are one of the most knowledgeable people outside of their inner circle about who they are and, and all of this evidence that that life has accumulated, you've put it together in one place, and then to lose the person. I mean, it's... Uh, I just wonder... Well, uh, it's, it can be sad. Yeah. Uh, you know, as much as I despised Fisher at the end of his life for his anti-Semitism, and I actually said on a YouTube show, you know, Bobby, come back to the United States and pay your taxes, and you're not gonna—they're not gonna send you to jail for violating uh, government sanctions or something as they they were trying to do. Yeah. Not, you're not gonna go to jail. Come back and apologize to the Jewish people, and you know, and so forth. And who the hell am I to say that? But uh, that was my advice. Uh, I despised him for that, but I also missed him. I miss him now. Yeah. You know, I. I what do I you like, miss about him? I like spending time with him. I, I, I could, I, uh, you know, I don't consider myself a particularly humorous person, but I had, I, 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 I had a direct route to his funny bone. I could make him laugh. Really? Yeah, and. Uh, you don't see him laugh a lot in footage. What's that? In footage of him, you, no, he's no, not I, laughing a lot. I could make him laugh. And, and over silly things. For instance, I once said to him, because I was writing about him all the time for several years in, in chess publications and so forth, and I would be typing the word Bobby, and it often would come out booby. <laughs> so, so for a while, I would, when I told him that, he cracked up. And then for a couple of days after that, I'd say, hey, Booby, you know, and every time he said it, he cracked up, you know. Uh. But I mean, that's just one little thing but, that I can remember. But I could, I could make him laugh. And uh, so uh, I, I imagine that was one of the reasons why he wanted to spend any time with me. I mean, you know, he would come over to my house. He would call me uh, rather than me necessarily going to him. So, uh, and that was, I think, unusual, you know. Harry Benson really liked him, too. Yeah, yeah. Just thought, found him very yeah. charming and unaffected, yeah, yeah. in a way. Then there were times when, you know, you just, uh, he did what he wanted to do. He would be walking somewhere, down, looking for a place to eat. And I'd say, well, let's go. And he would say, no, I'm going to go here. And he would just turn around and walk. Like, huh. if you didn't go with him, you wouldn't go with him. He had a fierce sense of his own independence, and he did that with friends a lot. Uh, and uh, because he knew everybody always wanted to be around Fisher, ever since he was about thirteen, and he always had a little coterie. Right. And uh, if if he didn't like doing what that person was doing or whatever, he, he would just cut them off because he knew there was always another half dozen people. Interesting. Who, who wanted yeah. to see him. And he cut you off because you included that he was Jewish. That's right. In he your book. Me, that's right. He wanted me to take that out. And, and, so, and he may have been even more Jewish than he thought he was because his biological father was also a Jew. Both. both, both I mean, we, we still don't really know yeah. who the father was. But the pictures but both are... Both of them were Jewish. Yeah, right. So, And who we think it was, Paul Nemenyi, 
Yeah. Looks identical to Bob. It does look Bob. very much like him. I mean... But we don't know if that's the real... Person. I have this situation in my own family that my middle brother, there was an affair, and oh. I've seen pictures of the guy who my mother was with. This oh. is an affair against my father. This is the yeah. first husband, but yeah. it's amazingly similar. similar. Also no. a Hungarian, like, like Fisher's father. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, he was... Uh, I like hanging around with him, and... Uh, uh, and of course, he loved me talking about chess, and 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 he liked to talk about chess. I mean, you, you ask him a question like, "Who do you think is the strongest player? Uh, who do you think is the weakest?" I remember I asked him that. Who's who do you think is the weakest grandmaster not playing? And he said, "Donna, of course, John Hine Donna, D O N N E R." See, not even a grandmaster, although he's got the official title. He's a terrible player. I mean, <laughs> you know he. He, he had all these opinions. He'd like to talk about the past. He'd like to talk about Morphy and, and all the others, Steinitz. Did he love these guys? Did he... Well, he admired them. Uh, I got him to write a, an article for me called The Twelve Greatest Masters in History. Huh. And he knew his stuff. Boy, yeah. he just came right out with it. And... Uh, and it was interesting that some of the players he didn't include, but uh, Morphy was included in that, and Spassky was included in that, strangely huh. enough. That was, he wrote that before he played Spassky. That's it. Well, and you, you, you mentioned to me, you wrote, wrote, wrote this wonderful book on Orson Welles, Citizen X, was it? Citizen, Citizen no. Citizen Wells. Citizen Wells, I'm sorry. Because I'm, okay. I'm going back to when I first okay. found it yeah. at, okay. at 15. Um, and I asked you, how close did you get to actually talking to your subject? And you, you got him on the phone once. I got him on the phone. He called me, actually. So I huh. I'd written a letter. And uh, I was in L.A. researching his life, Yeah. actually. And I had written a letter to get together. Uh, and uh, he called me one morning very early. And uh, uh, his voice was, you know... This, Magnificent. The shadow. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is Orson Welles. You know, and and uh, he said, you know, uh, I said, oh, hi. Uh, I received your letter. Uh, I don't think I can get together while you're in L.A. now. I'm heading for Paris soon. And, and he went on. But he gave me this long interview, which was nice and good and very fruitful for me. Did you record it? No, no. I did not. Uh, and he then, so he said, let's get together sometime else. We'll have a meal together. I said, fine, I'd like to. So then he hung up. Five minutes later, he calls back. It's Orson again, he said. <laughs> I forgot to tell you. And he went on to tell me something else that he thought I should know. And uh, so... That was the closest uh, I got to it. Are you taking that in stride, or is your heart racing as you're getting a phone call from Orson Welles? My heart is racing. Okay, good. Absolutely racing. That's probably why I didn't record it. I couldn't think to <laughs> say, could you hold on a minute and grab a tape machine and plug it in or whatever. I, I was just, and it was early in the morning, and I remember my wife was awake, and she actually got the first call, I believe, and, 
I said, how did you know it was Orson Welles? She said, it couldn't have been anybody else but that was. <laughs> well, because, I mean, for, for, for people like us who've done biographies of people, um, to actually gain contact with one of the, you know, this pantheon of people, I don't know if Welles was this for you, I, I should ask you, but, but, I mean, when I think about people where they hit you when you're a kid... And they mean, you know, they're not real. They're, they're mythological figures. And to reduce them to the prosaic of they're calling you on the phone, I find it still, like, it terrifies me. I had, I had Jack Nicholson call me once. or, or I, No, I called him, but I got put through to him. And I just could not accept that reality allowed <laughs> for him to be on the other end of the line. Yeah. So much so that I think it was a horrible interview that we did because I just couldn't gain my composure. I don't know that he picked up on it, but it was just so awkward. Is that for you? Did you have a group of these figures out there that meant, meant the world to you? And then, and then through your work, I mean, you started hunting them down. Well, yeah. Well, you know, uh, I had a, a radio show in New York. It was on twice a week. It was it ran for one year. Yeah. So, and it was an interview show. Uh, of sort of hip characters huh. uh, during the 60s. Uh, Allen Ginsberg, William Burroughs, etc., etc. Wow. And in many cases, I... Uh, uh, and so over a course of a year, I had interviewed about 100 people. And no, I don't have those tapes, believe it or not. Oh. Uh, I'm wondering if I put a... And in somewhere, something, somebody must have recorded them. It was on the Pacifica Network, so it was on New, in New York, San Francisco, and L.A., oh, wow. or, or New York, Berkeley, and L.A., I should say. Huh. Uh, but any event, so I did get to meet, a, but they weren't of the same stature, if you would, or celebrity stature as, as, uh, as Orson Welles, but, the, you know, there was many famous people in the arts, uh, and uh, perhaps I got used to it. On the other hand, so normally, no, I don't. I, I wouldn't say I was ever terrified, but I was. When Orson called me, because I had been working already on his life, I was excited and yeah. uh, and and interested, and uh, you know, boy, you know, it, it was really good. And you, but he died before you had a chance to to have that meal or have that meeting. No, we never had that meal. We both attended a funeral. He was at the funeral, and I was at the same funeral uh, of, his, of his attorney, Arnold Weisberger, after that. Huh. He was there, but I couldn't get to him. And, uh, you know, I had planned to, when I saw him. Actually, I taped the funeral, probably uh, the eulogies of the funeral, including one of Orson's. Really? Uh, yeah, surreptitiously, I had my tape recorder there, so bad quality, but I could hear it. But uh, do you listen to? Have you you listened to it? Yeah, I listened oh. to it. Yeah. Wow. So, I just find those things so interesting because again, like you were saying about some of these peripheral people, it connected to their life, like these these odd little moments where you finally capture somebody. It's never what you think it's going to be. Weisberger was a nice man, as was his sister, Augusta, and um, they both gave me telephone interviews. I hadn't actually met them. 
but I felt sort of when I read the obit that said where he was being, uh, uh, where the funeral was. I went to the funeral and uh, and there were a couple hundred people there, including Orson. So, uh, he must have been gigantic at this point. He was. Yeah. Yeah. Macy's Day blimp. Yeah. He was really, really something. So sad. Yeah. Well, and and funny. I, I learned, I think, in the process of researching Fisher, that he's at the same high school as your other subject, Barbara Streisand. Apparently she had a crush on him. Yeah, that is true, supposedly. That's what she said. Yeah, I wonder how much that's historical revision, but interesting. Do you have any more, like if, if you had, if somebody put a gun to your head and said you have to do one more biography, who would you most want to do? Interesting question. I hadn't thought of it. Uh, I really do feel, uh, in terms of my career, that I sort of know how to do a biography. They're all different, but yeah. uh, certain techniques, certain processes, and, and so forth. So I would be more comfortable doing that. I tried a novel fairly recently and, and although I know how to write a sentence and a paragraph and even a page I really don't know how to write a novel mm. uh, and uh, so I've put that in a, a hiatus but I know how to write a biography uh, I don't know you know the first name that came up to me believe it or not when you said that is Trump uh, I detest him but that that is the problem that I might have with it but I wouldn't mind really getting into him and really finding out what he's all about and uh, spending time reading all of the books that have you met him before have you no, oh no, no seen him in public no, no me neither no, no. what's well, weird to me because I moved I moved to New York in a, in a couple months it'll be 10 years Wow. And so I remember the sound of calling my ex-wife while she was here, and this is just before I moved, when Obama was elected, and she was crying, and there were people cheering in the street, and I thought, wow, I'm, I'm entering such a special time in this country. I can't believe this happened. I was with my dad when he gave that speech at Kerry's, um, when was that, 2004, I think, and we both said, God, I, we we hope this guy never becomes the Democratic candidate because somebody's going to assassinate him in the sure. United States. We sure. were terrified for him. Sure, sure, sure. But immediately you sensed there was star power that was special. Absolutely. And moved over here, Obama's America, and still riding this wave of feeling that started that day when she was crying. And I thought, what a... What a special thing to mean so much to people that have never met you that they're crying oh. about what you represent. Oh. And you and I, just before we met to spend two weeks at this chess championship, it, it's amidst the backdrop of a lot of people crying wherever I was going on the subway because the president was elected and they're miserable and terrified. Yeah, really it was such an inversion, the mood in this place, just this collective nervous breakdown or uh, hysteria. You know, uh, psychiatrists, <clears throat> psychoanalysts uh, many of them are saying people are coming with problems and that 
You know, they're no longer talking about their sex lives. They're talking about the problem they're having with Trump. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't know how many have that, but many do. Harry Benson said two things about that that jump out at me right now. One is he said, I said, how long after meeting Trump? He showed me a picture of Trump at 30 or something, early 30s, the first time Benson met him. And Trump really liked Benson. He went on a documentary talking about how much he liked Benson and his wife. Ben, Benson hated Trump. And I said, how long after you met him did you think it was possible? How many years that it was possible he would run for president? He said, yeah. years. Five minutes. Really? He said, it's just like meeting Hitler. You knew the yeah. moment you met him, this guy is good. Whatever is the job, he's going, he's going for it. <laughs> no question. That's something. I thought, God. Um, yeah, and... and Yeah, he was so so sad about that saying that. I mean, he was very clear on it, but very sad about it. But uh, yeah, I wonder what kind of book you would, yeah, how you would approach that. Thank you so much for this, Frank. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcón Suebi and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Thanks for listening.